Roxy, how happy are you to be recording this podcast today? Um, well, I would say a normal amount of happy. Okay. Well, that is unacceptable because today's book oh. is all about how you need to be the most happy. Well, how are you going to get me happier? <laughs> a little cheerleading? <laughs> I'm actually going to be reading you a lot of quotes that are supposed to ostensibly make you way happier, although I am not really sure that is going to be the end result. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, right now, still normal happy. Okay. Well, it sounds to me like you're kind of drifting into the angry space now, but let's get going and see if we can turn it around. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City Wintertime Edition. I'm Tyler Huckabee. And I'm Roxy Stone. We are calling this series... Apocryphon. On every episode of this show, we talk about a popular, influential, or at least lucrative Christian book from the 90s or 2000s. We'll talk about how it shaped American Christianity and our own personal faith journeys and how it's aged in our current dystopian Christian nationalist hellscape. On this episode, we're talking about, get ready for it, here we go, Desiring God. (laughs) Happy enough? Let's keep that energy going for the rest of this conversation. I think you've got it. (laughs) I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Desiring God, published in 1986, which is a little outside the window for most of the books in this podcast, but it casts such a huge shadow over this era of Christian publishing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we were both surprised when we looked at when this book was published and realized it's actually almost as old as we are. Yeah. This book has been around for a while, but it's been relevant ever since it was published. Which explains why I thought... It's like always been in the air, but... Same here. Because I, I remember like seeing it on like the end of book stands in Barnes & Noble and things like that. Mm-hmm. It launched Piper into a rare stratosphere of pastoral celebrity and it introduced the American church to what he called Christian hedonism. Uh, I'm going to need a refresher on Christian hedonism. <laughs> I don't remember this and I don't really associate John Piper with hedonism. Christian or otherwise? Uh, sure. Why explain why what what is the disconnect in your mind between John Piper the person and hedonism the concept? Letting loose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John Piper's got kind of a buttoned up persona <laughs> yeah. and hedonistic in my mind I sit with more with like bacchanal like mm-hmm. like going crazy mm-hmm. and and that is not emphatically not what he means by Christian hedonism. But Christian hedonism is John Piper's whole thing, that God wants us all to be happy. And to be happy, you have to find that happiness in God. I think this is maybe where the rub is for me a little bit about desiring God and this particular episode of the podcast. It's very hard for me, I think, at this point to separate desiring God from John Piper and Uh to separate a John Piper that wrote Desiring God, the book from the John Piper that farewelled Rob Bell Uh and, you know, is like the Christianity police on Twitter slash X 
and extremely dogmatic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, yeah. like hedonism, Christian hedonism is not what comes to mind. Happiness is not what comes uh-huh. to mind when I think of Piper. My sure. my first real experience with John Piper that I that I really remember was at Passion. Oh. In 2000, in this rainy weekend where we rode, a bunch of us from college road trips to Memphis um, and camped, slept outside on this big field and it rained the whole weekend. You had the real passion experience. Yeah. It was like Coachella for a Christian kid. It was yeah. so important. 100%. And that was when he gave the seashell speech. Oh, you know, wow. Sort of you were iconic. there in the I person for there. the seashell speech? I don't think I knew that, Roxy. <laughs> yeah. How did I know you all this time? I didn't know you were there for... I was. Can you, for our listeners who don't know, <laughs> can you give a brief overview of the seashell speech? Yeah. So this is a, a famous speech that Piper gave to this sea of college students who were on fire for Jesus, you know, and this was the Passion Band, and he was one of the pastors that spoke, and he gave this speech about how about this retired couple that lived on the beach and, you know, took walks every day and collected seashells and had a giant seashell collection, Uh and he said, this is such a waste. Um, This is a complete waste of a life to, to retire to just collect seashells to have no, according to him, no, you know, no purpose, no mission. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be out there saving souls for Christ until we die. So, um, you know, it kind of spoke, I, we, I feel like we keep coming back to this a little bit on this podcast, but it kind of spoke to a bunch of us who were like, what's our mission? What's our battle to fight? How do we live lives? Not of quiet despair, but of like real purpose and meaning and all of it for Jesus's glory. You know, so this mm-hmm. is what I remember most about Piper. And I, I remember reading Desiring God after that, but I mostly just remember him and his presence and that that sort of like sure. that feeling that I had of like, I'm going to live the highest highs and the lowest lows for Jesus. And that pressure, which, which has been, I think, almost in every book that we've talked about mm-hmm. so far, the idea that you've only got one wild, precious life <laughs> yes. and you've got to live it all for God. And Piper's innovation, especially in the 80s, was tying that to happiness. Yeah. And even he would imply sort of a barometer to the extent that you are not happy in God, you are not living life to the fullest. Um, Mm -hmm. Unlike a lot of the books that followed in his footsteps here, Piper took great pains to stress that what he was arguing for was not all that radical. Mm. He wanted people to believe that this was orthodox, this is real Christianity, this is how the early church would have understood Christianity, Mm -hmm. and everything that he's saying lines up with the catechisms and the creeds and the Bible. And he gets pretty defensive if Mm -hmm. anyone suggests that Desire and God is somehow out of step with a more conservative traditional reading of scripture. I'm not sure we disagree with Piper on this one. <laughs> I don't think so either. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit, but first, I got to give you our pop no. quiz. Yes. <laughs> this one's going to be really bad. <laughs> In fact, I am not happy about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's not surprising because your happiness is clearly rooted in passing pop quizzes and you will never find true happiness as long as that's the case. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, I find a lot of happiness in failing people on pop quizzes. I think (laughs) at least one of us will get out of here alive. Are you ready? Yeah. According to the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Oh, man. Um, The chief end of man is 
to please God? Uh, I don't think that would probably pass. Mm. It's to glorify God and enjoy oh. Him forever. <laughs> I didn't go to a Christian college, remember? <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, that's really showing right now. Second question. <laughs> Before Piper wrote Desiring God, he was a professor at what college? I'll give you multiple choice here. Was it Wheaton, Bethel, or Biola? Bethel. That's right. He's still there. He started pastoring mm-hmm. a church in 1980, was a pastor there until 2013 when he retired and he still lives up there and goes to the same church. And then this isn't about desiring God. I just thought this was interesting. In 1998, John Piper started a sermon series through the book of Romans. How long do you think it took him to complete it? Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to go big. I'm going to go big. Um, I mean, he's not still doing it, right? He's done. He's retired. Uh, yeah. But not collecting seashells. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mm, more or less than 12 months. More. Dang. Okay. Yeah. More or less than 12 years. A little less, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> it was eight years. Wow. It's eight years. You've spent eight years on one sermon series. It's a really long time. Well, you didn't exactly pass, but I, it was a harder quiz. And you. And it's also, I, I got, I went off book for this one. I got one of them and that feels great. We'll give you, we'll let you pass. I'm going to try to make you happy one way or the other. Amazing. Thank you. All right. So the reason that we picked this book, even though it sort of falls out of our window, is because John Piper's legacy looms so large over the experience of the Christian millennial, i.e. us. Mm -hmm. Uh, No matter who you are, liberal, conservative, flip-flop between the two, uh, evangelical, ex-evangelical, MAGA, socialist, whatever you are, you've definitely had to contend with Piper at some point or another. And to just to go back to the time it was published, Desiring God was really taken as a response to the sort of puritanical, duty-bound Christianity that left a lot of Christians feeling a little maybe skeptical of happiness or paranoid mm-hmm. of happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of boomer Christians seem to have this idea that really good Christians really shouldn't be all that interested in being happy or that happiness, if it's a byproduct, maybe it's okay, but you need to be really careful about happiness. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. I associate that more with my grandparents and like the depression era people, but Uh like think about the dad and Footloose. It's like no Uh dancing, no music. Exactly. So you can see why Piper's book raises a lot of eyebrows. Uh, he, so he, cause he not only says Christians are allowed to be happy or, or should be happy, but that happiness is the chief end of Christianity. Right. right. Provided, provided, and this is a big provided that you're finding your happiness in God, not in the things of God, not in the gifts God gives you, but in God specifically, that is where you find your ultimate happiness. That is what the main goal, that is the main boss of life is to mm. find out how to be happy in God. Hmm. So the things of God that we're not supposed to find our happiness in, what does that mean? Like church? Um, Even just like the obedience, like what? It gets a little technical in this and you're, you're kind of in the right, like things like, you know, um, marriage and Mm. things like, like, you know, music, the things that bring you happiness, whatever those things are, your, your hobbies, your friends, your community, your church. These are all things, these are all good gifts that God gives you. But if they are the source of your happiness or if they're where you're finding your happiness, you really haven't quite achieved the perfect nirvana of Christian happiness, Mm. which is found specifically in 
God himself. And he goes through throughout this whole book, great lengths to explain how this works using scripture itself. How would he feel about you using the word nirvana? (laughs) Well, probably not, probably not great, but as we'll see, Piper is not above pulling from, Mm -hmm. uh, from pagan sources to back up some of his ideas. So uh, he may not, I don't think he'd love it, but he, he would probably, I don't know if he's listening to this and he wants to respond. He knows where to find us. So, how does one find happiness in God? And how does Piper define happiness? Because I don't remember. <laughs> There's actually quite a bit of, uh, he gets very, very technical around a lot of that and and what happiness looks like. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the sort of joy and happiness dichotomy that a lot of churches drew. Like it's one thing to be happiness comes and goes, happiness is fleeting, but joy is forever and joy is eternal. And if you find your joy in the Lord, then happiness might fade in and out with your circumstances, but your joy is going to last Piper kind of leans into that a little bit, but he doesn't, mm-hmm. he really does stick with happiness as the, as the word he wants to use for it, because he does believe in this idea that once you have found uh, perfect unity, because God is a being of perfect happiness, then when we are united with God, we are also perfectly happy. And our expression of that is also one of happiness. It is out of the fullness of our contentment with God that happiness blooms. And honestly, a lot of this stuff, as he's writing about it, I find very moving and compelling. Mm-hmm. It's a, I think it's to the extent that I understand all of what he's talking about, which I'm sometimes it gets a little too like in the weeds for me or too scholastic for me to really follow along. I do love the idea of God as a being who created people for perfect happiness. Mm-hmm. And that, that the the idea of our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him is something that I've always found to be a really beautiful and, and poetic way to think about Christianity. Uh, but it is when <laughs> the, the more he tries to defend it, honestly, the more skeptical of some of his arguments I get. And Piper is kind of, as we've hinted at, he's pretty insistent that this is not like a new kind of Christian or some kind of new interpretation of the Bible. He's insisting that this is really just about having a different attitude toward orthodoxy, that seeking God and following conservative evangelicalism's understanding of God's laws, like that is what should make you happy. Right, right. Which is where some of this starts to fall apart for me anyway, because a lot of the things that in my mind have been a source of deep unhappiness for Mm -hmm. many people within Christianity are still very much a part of Piper's whole deal here. And I think post-desiring God, a lot of those things have become way more associated with John Piper than the celebration of happiness that this book really wants to be. And I think that that really set the stage for desiring God to flourish. Which it did. Mm -hmm. And the success of desiring God really launched him into a notoriety that he's uncomfortable with, like clearly so. He donated Mm -hmm. 100% of the royalties from his books to charity. He retired in 2013, but still attends the same church. 
Mm -hmm. He also, in that time, launched Desiring God, the website, which is probably where a lot of Mm. people became more familiar with him, especially in our generation. He answers, he does like Q&As on these things. He and other writers publish a lot of articles. So many articles. And some of these become very, very notorious on the internet for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's... He, he definitely knows how to stir up a hornet's nest on the internet. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the most insidious writings on there, the most famous writings, have to do with his thoughts about the role of women. Yeah, definitely. In the church, in marriage, in society at large. Yeah, women, gender roles, church leadership, sexuality, some of his favorite topics. For sure. Yeah. A woman wrote in asking if it said she wanted to become a police officer, asked if that would be okay. Oh, my gosh. He doesn't come out and say she shouldn't be a cop, but he basically Uh, says women shouldn't be in any job in which they would exercise direct authority over men. He says he, he uses this analogy a few times. He says women could be something like a city planner where they would decide, like, whether or not men could drive one which way they can drive down a street mm. because that's impersonal, but they mm-hmm. could not be a in a place where they could tell a man to his face what to do or or well, something and like that. Only a city planner if they don't have any direct reports that are men. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, right. So obviously can't be a pastor. Oh, that's not even on the Definitely table. Can't be the president of the United States. No. He did at one time uh, say that women, a woman who was in an abusive relationship should stay in the marriage or or counseled women against leaving. He comes back after that, goes, obviously catches a lot of heat and he sort of couches Mm -hmm. it with, well, she can call the police if she's feeling unsafe, but that should not be, you know, and I think in Piper's perfect world, women would not leave just because their husband hits them. Right. I mean, you'll be surprised, though, to find that he thinks it's okay to read books by women. (laughs) He goes ahead and lets women be authors. (laughs) Men can read books by women because, quote, there's a interposition of the phenomenon called book and writing that puts the woman as author out of the reader's sight and, in a sense, takes away the dimension of her female personhood. Whereas if she were standing right in front of me, teaching me as my shepherd week in and out, I couldn't make that separation, end quote. That is a crazy thing to write. It's a crazy quote. Like, that, is, that is insane that somebody wrote that. <laughs> it's so crazy. It's so hard for me to take even the things about this book that I did find genuinely compelling, of which there was a lot, separating it from this only way he can take a woman seriously is if he removes her female personhood. Personhood. That's, that is, it makes it very, very difficult to take anything he says seriously. And it makes me question the things about what he wrote that I do like. Mm-hmm. It seems like it poisons the whole well. I wonder if that's why he felt like he could beat up on women on the internet because they were, sure they had had their female personhood removed. I'm thinking yeah. of Rachel Hold Evans in particular. I don't think they did not get along well. So, Piper and Rachel got into it a few times. Yeah. This is the, I think, kind of the core issue of desiring God. Piper insisted that real Christianity should make us happy, but he didn't jettison the racist and misogynistic elements of evangelicalism that have been used to subjugate and oppress people for centuries. And that's why I think that Desiring God is a book with a lot of truths that sound very beautiful right up until Piper starts talking about them or explaining what he means by them. (laughs) All right. Let's get into that much more after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. 
From Anglicans to Zoroastrians, RNS has religion covered A to Z. And if you like what we're doing on Saved by the City or here on Apocryphon, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. And if you have some suggestions for books you'd like to see us cover, well, we'd love to hear them. Hit us up on social media. You know the deal. Not X, not TikTok, somewhere else. Or you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We would love to hear from you. So this book is a theological and philosophical treatise on Christian hedonism. Uh, His thesis statement is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He goes on to spend most of the book explaining what Christian hedonism looks like through different parts of the Christian experience. He said the foundation of his argument is really that God is ultimately sovereign, which means he is ultimately happy because how can someone who doesn't always get his way not be happy? (laughs) He goes on to argue that we were created to share in this happiness and God's happiness by worshiping God, loving others, and making more Christian hedonists. That sounds fun. (laughs) That is a big part of the book. He gets to it early. It is so core to our purpose that if we don't become Christian hedonists, we will spend eternity suffering in hell. Okay. See, I do associate Piper with a lot of talk of hell. Yes. Which also rhymes with farewell. And Rob Beck, <laughs> coincidentally. The only really like maybe organic Christian meme from the internet is many years ago when uh, Rob Bell kind of asked some questions about the orthodox idea of eternal suffering hell. in hell. And John Piper said, farewell, Rob Bell, which is now used, I think, by Christian Twitter anytime somebody <laughs> says something slightly unorthodox. It's very, it, it's great. It, I've used it myself, I'm sure. It's very funny. Yeah, it was a great moment, um, even though it was, you know, not very nice. He, I, I want to, I do want to focus on this because he really does labor this point very hard. He makes it clear that it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You really have to become a full Christian hedonist. He puts, I'm going to read this mm-hmm. passage because mm-hmm. I found it kind of shocking. He says, quote, the world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. In my neighborhood, every drunk on the street, quote, believes in Jesus. Drug dealers believe in Jesus. Panhandlers who haven't been to church in 40 years believe in Jesus. There's this real disdain. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a weird sort of fixation on the poor, like people who are on the streets and are homeless and are maybe have an addiction issue. And just because they say they believe in Jesus, that does not obviously make them a full Christian hedonist, which in his mind means they are not actually a Christian at all. Yeah. It's sort of a, you'll be happy in God or else. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this, okay, this is really what I feel like I associate with desiring God with John Piper, with even the seashell speech and the, that era of Piper is that, no, this isn't maybe a new kind of Christianity, but it's like, it's so dire. It's so, so much pressure, I think at that age or any age to be, I mean, it kind of makes me just wonder all the time, like, wait, wait, I feel something in church. Is this about God or is this about the things of God? Is this about the music? Is, is my motivation right here is the root of my happiness in the correct place. I can't get away from how anxiety laden that feels to me to question all of the time whether I am happy enough in God or in the right 
what even is that? You know, but I better figure it out. Otherwise, I'm going to go to hell. Yeah. I think a lot of Christian kids had that feeling of like walking home. You don't see mom right away and you're like, oh, no, the rapture happened Mm -hmm. and I was not a good enough Christian. That must be, Mm -hmm. it's like the default assumption for what happens when mom doesn't answer the phone (laughs) one time, which I think was very, I've heard enough people talk about this and I think it was a very common experience. And the only way you get that is from talk like this that really puts the pressure on you to be like, I know you say you believe in Jesus, but do mm-hmm. you believe but do in you Jesus? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Or did you, you know, did you confess your last sin before the trumpet sounded and you got left behind? Yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that really made me crazy. And then I think still impacts me a lot in my view of God is the sense that, you know, God can always see through to the heart of what you're really uh-huh. feeling. And so if your happiness is slightly off base, you might go to hell. It, it's a really, really terrifying way to live. And I don't, it's kind of weird to see how they try to match this up with grace a lot of times. Like, well, what does it mean that God always forgives? It's like, well, yeah, but don't push your luck. He He will, but he's not going to be happy about it. And then what are you going to do? Like, it doesn't, you're, you're told, I feel like a lot of truth, truths that exist in a lot of tension, which is maybe just part of the Christian walk, but these truths are mostly used to keep you in line, mm-hmm. to make sure you don't ever get too happy in things that might not be good for you, which in, in Piper's framework, you know, if you're not happy with your husband because he hits you when you don't do what he wants, well, then whose fault is that? It's, it's a really, and obviously he tries mm. to couch this in other ways, but it shouldn't take that much nuance yeah. in a theology to tell a woman to get out of an abusive relationship. Well, you're not even supposed to be happy in your marriage. <laughs> like that's not yeah, where your happiness yeah. is supposed to come from. So, right, right. you know, your circumstances shouldn't dictate whether or not you're happy. I mean, right. there is some stuff in here, and this spoke to my emerging social justice loving soul in college. Like, there's some stuff in the book that almost scans progressive or at least, you know, really concerned with, you know, with placing God above wealth or consumerism. Yes, that is true. Here's a quote from him. God does not prosper a man's business so he can move from a Ford to a Cadillac. God prospers a business so that thousands of unreached peoples can be reached with the gospel. He prospers a business so that 20% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. I'd, I'd maybe argue that leaving it up to the businesses to take care of the 20% of the world's population facing starvation isn't quite the silver bullet to hunger that he thinks it is. Yeah, I mean, I think we've... But we've, I like the energy. I think we've figured that out with the mm-hmm. billionaires. And of course, the, specifically the men's businesses. Yes. It's interesting to think about this really beautiful idea of Christian hedonism in light of Piper's other teachings especially about women. Right. When I first came to this, I found the like forest very beautiful. And then the more I started looking at the trees, the worse it got to the point where by the time I finished the book, I was like, is the forest beautiful? (laughs) I like the idea. Mm -hmm. I like the pitch of this book a lot. Mm -hmm. But if this is what you mean by it, then I don't want it. Mm -hmm. Like other books we've covered, it really can't resist implying that Christianity is good for everyone, but it's especially extra good for men. Was masculinity already in crisis here? What was the, the <laughs> fixation that Christian men had? Because I feel like we've been hearing about this a lot. Yeah. But every book that we've talked about, with the exception, I guess, of Miller's book, has had at some point some 
like discourse about the role of men and women, like gender roles? I mean, maybe I would argue that it's a little more about what we talked about last week. It's an era without a war for America. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, you know, baby boomer men are sort of coming into their own Mm -hmm. and they're coming off of these legacies of the great war, you know? So I wonder if there's something to that and to this disappointment, this letdown of, you know, middle-aged crisis kind of thing. Like you're working in an office, you're living in the suburbs, like life doesn't have the purpose and adventure and meaning that it that you thought it might kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, this is promise keepers too, right? This is promise keepers era. For sure. There's also the church is like really trying to hold on to men. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not going well. This is definitely an era when you can see there there are way more women in the American Mm -hmm. church than there are men and there are wives who are going while their husbands go out to golf. And there's this need to figure out how to get men involved again. Mm which I would say has been a resounding success in the years since then to the point (laughs) where women no longer feel welcome in churches. All right. Well, beyond the gender role stuff, Mm -hmm. what, what do you think of the idea of happiness as the chief end of Christians, at least in the way that Piper defines it. Like, how does that sit with you then or now? I don't, I think that there isn't nothing there. What I, mm-hmm. what I grew more skeptical of is this idea that there is a sharp line between God and the things of God. Mm-hmm. Like seashells. Exactly. Like of Famously made by God. <laughs> this is, that goes back to the American beauty thing, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the exact same thing where, because you have Annette Benning in American Beauty who is doing her gardening and that makes her very, very happy. But Kevin Spacey is the guy who can see through all that bullshit and mm-hmm. is like, well, that's not enough. You should want like more from life. Like you should want Mina Savari. And I think that that is kind of where Piper, I feel like Piper's going down that same road there. Because to me, spending your life with your wife doing something that is not hurting anybody and that seems Mm -hmm. to bring you a lot of personal fulfillment and happiness, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, I want to resist it, especially this idea that you can't find joy in or happiness in the things of God. I want to be like, well, why did God make them? You know, what, Mm -hmm. what's the purpose of them? What, you know, if, if they aren't in part for delight, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about like the light that the moon is casting on a path is not the moon itself, Mm -hmm. you know, but it is beautiful and it is something that (laughs) that makes you look up or makes you notice or makes you follow. And you know, that, that there's something good Mm -hmm. there. All right. Where are we at now with Desiring God? Where is Piper at now? Let's wrap this up. Put it in the moment. What is John Piper's deal 30 years (laughs) after Desiring God? No more. Th- I don't know. I can't do math. Yeah, how many? However many. Almost, I think it's almost more 40. than that. It's more like forty. Oh man. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Ugh. So, the moment. Do you feel like this book? Do you feel like the ideas that he argued for here have defined the church, or do you feel like this is a 
given the impact and influence of Desiring God, do you feel like it really shifted American Christianity towards thinking this way? Yes and no. I don't think that people associate Christians with not having any fun or not enjoying life. Like mm-hmm. I don't I don't mm-hmm. think that the Ned Flanders um footloose father idea is still really the broad popular idea of what it is to be a Christian. But I think the I think the dogmatic aspects of this are still around and the hard line mm-hmm. if if not more entrenched um you know, certainly, as we've talked about already, the gender roles um, and the doubling down on that. Um, but I feel like that's what Christians are becoming more and more known for, at least conservative Christians. So they're not they're not yet known for Christian hedonism by any means. I mean, they sure they're they're not maybe considered like fuddy duddies anymore. But but nobody's going around talking about how happy yeah conservative Christians are. They're just talking about how they're culture warriors. You know, yeah. and and that's how I think of Desiring God and Piper too. It's not like I don't I don't really imagine John Piper as a super happy person. Yeah, hmm. maybe. He so, is. given all of that, would you say this book was apocryphal or apocryphal? Um, definitely not fun, not fully foul, but more foul. Um, apocryphal. <laughs> not bad <laughs> not bad uh, <laughs> we can run with that Apocryphon is a project that was saved by the city and is a religion news service production senior producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell we get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham and Julia Wyndham Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music we are Tyler Huckabee and Roxy Stone farewell this is say farewell farewell <laughs> <laughs>